house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Coffee's free for friends of the press. I heard a young woman was murdered. Who told you that? You just did. Sonia Baker. Valued member of my staff died this morning. Congressman Collins, he's an old friend of yours, is that right? Good reporters don't have friends, only sources. You okay? Collins was allegedly having an affair with a young woman. Want to know everything that we can about her? We've got eight hours. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast wishing George Clooney's directorial career a good night and good luck. And perhaps a goodbye. Every week on this Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my favorite bloodsucker and blogger, wow. Joe Reed. Wow. Um, I guess I'll take the compliment that I'm the Rachel McAdams of this podcast. Like, that makes me feel good. <laughs> This movie we are here to talk about on this day is about the the moment in time or the bygone days when journalists and bloggers were in a war. I I that was my first note when I was writing down notes. Well, it was my second note. My first note was uh Russell Crowe entered the aughts like a lion and went out like a lamb scarfing down Cheetos because that is the first thing you see. <laughs> In this movie is Russell Crowe just, like, wolfing down a bag of Cheetos, which, respect, because I could go for that right about now. Um, but, yeah, my second... Flaming Hot Cheetos. My, see, I'm not a Flaming Hot... I'm a, I'm a baby. I'm a real, real wuss when it comes to, like, spicy... Especially, like, chemically spicy stuff. Like, Flaming Hot Cheetos is... I look at that, and I'm just like, ulcer is basically what I look uh, at that. And so it's just See, like, I'm not a Cheeto person in general, but the Flamin' Hot Cheetos at least taste like the spicy nacho Doritos, which is the best Dorito flavor. Um, see, we're apart on that. I do like the sweet chili. Like, that's about as spicy as I'll go with Dorito, is the sweet chili. See, that chili. tastes more chemical to me. Interesting. I guess there are certain chemical, like... At some point, you got to make your peace with chemical stuff, like in snacks, because this is the world we live in. But that is sort of riding the right side of the line for me. I always feel like, uh, oh, what's my good example for like chemical shit that I like can't deal with? I guess like diet Pepsi. Like diet Pepsi is like the chemical uh, yes. thing. That Whereas, is like it's not even a beverage. I'm sure under like the FDA rules, they have to call it like a beverage product or something. Which is so funny because Diet Coke tastes like it sprung forth from a spring in the ground. You know what I mean? Like Diet Coke, Coke mm, is the most only like, when it's from a fountain. I mean, fountain anything is is superior. Absolutely. Although nothing. This is such a classy problem thing but like nothing annoys me more when i'm ordering like a doordash or something like that and i order a fountain beverage there and it shows up and it's flat and there's nothing you can do about it there's just like you are powerless you have no recourse there is just nothing to be done about it and you have this like in my case often i'll get like 
whatever, large Diet Coke with whatever I'm getting, and it's just, like, flat as you can please, and it's just, like... Because they filled it with ice, and the ice melted. That is a big part of it. This is also why, not to be, like, total trash and be like, you know what's great about 7-Eleven, but the thing about 7-Eleven is they have made the Big Gulp such a big part of their branding that they, like, tend to that machine like it's a priority. So, like, your Big Gulp is always going to be right and tight, like, with that carbonation. It's just going to be <laughs> it's going to be exactly what you want. And I appreciate that about 7-Eleven, much more than I appreciate the hellscape taquitos that they have near the register that look like they could... Oh, that are just, like, constantly rolling all just day long. burn a hole through a Mack truck, those things could. Like, it's just, like, the absolute horrors that it's going to wreak on your digestive system if you try a 7-Eleven taquito is just not worth it. But the Big Gulp, worth it. Anyway. Anyway, our best episodes are about snacks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, we're here to talk about State of Play. Oh, I was... I had not seen before. This. I totally... The tangent that I went on totally took me away from the thing I was going to say, which was the very valid point that you brought up, which is that this movie is incredibly preoccupied with what uh, media and journalism was very preoccupied with at the time, which was, is digital journalism taking over? Is print journalism uh, a dinosaur and on the way out spoiler alert yes to both um but there was this like huge sense of anxiety about whether digital journalism was bankrupt and shallow and uh, a lesser quality of journalism and it's it's funny to look back from barely over a decade now that this is that this movie is and see just how entirely print journalism was sort of seeded over to journalism in ways that like i guess in some ways the whatever the worst horror stories of what people want uh, uh, worried about that like perez hilton would be in the white house press room or something like that like <laughs> never came to pass but right um and in general it's just like all the big print journalists now just like submit their column and it goes up on the new york times webpage you know what i mean it's just like that's sort of where we ended up and Everything's got a paywall now, and they f- they figured out probably not a great way to monetize it, but like better than whatever. Everybody's cer- newspaper circulation is down. The thing that they should have been worried about more was what the really big bad thing that happened, which was local papers just started closing. Like the Washington right. Post was always going to be fine. You know what I mean? Like the New York Times is always going to be fine. It's the, you know. Or they are essentially defunct where you have like local papers where 95 percent of what is printed in them is just an ap wire right local journalism right local journalism really died up or dried up and um anyway not to like that's a whole other tangent but like this movie really does represent that like huge anxiety of that moment it's almost the most interesting thing about this movie because like obviously this is a political intrigue journalism thriller like you know doing my research on this like they it it talked very much about how this is inspired by all the president's men and it's like well every movie like this thinks that it's inspired by all the president's men like well And the interesting thing about it, and I'll definitely be going into this more as we go along in this episode, is I 
loved the original British miniseries that this was based on. I watched it. Oh, okay. So this is very interesting because I was going to ask if you had seen it and I had not. So I'm very interested in uh, yeah. your perspective. This was an early... Uh, I meant to look up when exactly I watched it. I got it on Netflix discs. This was early sort of Netflix, but especially back in that moment when... Shows that aired on British TV really were really inaccessible unless you torrented, which I have never torrented. So, which doesn't make me morally superior. It makes me technologically inept. So, like, don't worry no, about I've it. No, I've never torrented either. And that's less that, like, I am morally superior to anyone and, like, I'm afraid of, you know, giving my computer the flu. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um. So, I rented State of Play pretty soon after it was uh, available on DVD. So if not, like, right in 2003, like, 2004, 2005. So this is even before the American remake was happening and was, like, immediately talked about potential Best Picture player. (laughs) Right. So I was was so excited when they announced that State of Play was going to be a movie because it was like, oh, based on that, like, British series that I loved. And so I, like, rented it on the discs, and that was the way that you could, like, you could watch... UK queer as folk that way. You could watch, you know, mm-hmm. UK skins that way. And so all There's of these so shows. There's so many shows that, that I like want to watch that are like on Showtime and I don't have Showtime and I'm not paying for yet another streaming service. Exactly. That, like, exactly. I can't watch. That's, yeah, I watched the American Kirsten Queer as Folk that way. It's not too. available. Yeah. American Queer as Folk was just as inaccessible to me as British Queer as Folk because I didn't have Showtime. So yeah, it was a great workaround for stuff like that. I watched all of Oz that way via Netflix discs. Like the heyday of Netflix discs. For as much as people sort of like laugh about it as if it's a dinosaur, even though I do still, I'm literally looking at my Netflix envelopes on my coffee table as we speak. (laughs) I still have it too, but I'm thinking of canceling. I'm not. I just, I, there's so many DVDs I can rent and rip and rent and rip that like, I just, I need to keep it going. My issue is that it's, I'm having mail issues. Oh yeah. That's a bummer. Um, having a non-reliable uh, mail situation in your apartment is uh, is shitty. Uh, but anyway, so the original uh, miniseries of this, it was six hours, uh, uh, written by Paul Abbott, directed by David Yates, who this basically this, and then he made that movie, um, The Girl in the Cafe, the TV movie with Bill Nye and uh, Kelly McDonald, who were both in State of Play. Uh, and then that basically is what got him the Harry Potter gig uh, that he's been doing forevermore since then. But anyway, so six-part miniseries, the bones of the plot are pretty much the same. They kind of, in the condensing, you lose a character, you end up losing entirely the character that James McAvoy played in the original, which is like a bummer. Um, But it's essentially uh, MP, a minister of parliament there uh, is investigating in that, that one, it is a oil company. It's because it was 2003. The preoccupation was less Blackwater because like Blackwater was a thing that we got worried about a few years down the road. But in this one, it was an oil company who was, uh, there were hearings about and there was a lobbying firm and they had the ties to uh, the sort of corruption there. Um, but it's still like the reporter and the MP have a longstanding friendship and still the same stuff with the wife. The wife was played by Polly Walker from uh, Rome and uh, several other things. Uh, but the movie Uh, when uh, Kevin McDonald decided he wanted to make the movie version of it. And obviously you condense a lot of stuff. And as you can imagine, it unfolds a lot more uh, 
there's a lot more to it as in a six part miniseries, and it was just very compelling and very exciting. The cast is phenomenal: uh, David Morrissey and Bill Nye, James McAvoy, as I mentioned, uh, Tom Burke, who I totally forgot played the gay IT guy in the original, and like was my favorite character, and had totally until I literally went and looked at the cast at just the moment. I was just like, who played the gay IT guy? And it was Tom Burke, like amazing. <laughs> um. But Kevin McDonald's version ends up being a lot more preoccupied with this idea of what is journalism now? What can, mm-hmm. like, what is the value of a journalistic institution to uncovering corruption? And, and State of Play was a lot more granular in the sort of how the sausage is made of the, of, of the journalism. And in that way, it essentially, told in or showed you instead of told you about why uh, journalism is important but it didn't have these really like top end top down sort of preoccupations with r- wrestling with the idea of journalism in a modern age where it just sort of told a story and i think it's a stronger in um, in almost every aspect it's a stronger uh piece of entertainment than the film is unfortunately I mean, I would believe that. This movie is, like, I was surprised that it got such good reviews. Because it's pretty... I mean, it's not bland, it's watchable, but it is a little by the book and by the numbers. Yes. In a way that I'm like, if you had a longer version of this, if this was a mini... Like, if I was watching the miniseries, I'm sure that, like you could get invested in these actual characters. It wouldn't be like generic senator having an affair story. Yeah. I think there's also another level of this movie that feels bland, and I would believe it being in, being more prominent in another draft of this script, because this has three prominent script writers, and you can imagine, like... Four, actually. They were not working in tandem. Uh, Peter Morgan Four? also tinkered with the script, because it was... Uh, Uncredited, though. Right. Um, but uh, Matthew Michael Carnahan originally he had to leave the project for family reasons, so Tony Gilroy took over. Um, it's and then Billy Ray, and then also Peter Morgan sort of tinkered with it. So you have these like four name screenwriters, which is both fascinating, but also really gives you a sense of this movie had a, had a few different uh, a lot of cooks in the kitchen. It feels very diluted, yes. but there is an aspect of this movie that, like, I could believe it being more prominent in another draft that does feel very post nine eleven anxieties as well. Oh, totally. And, like that's kind of on the fringes with like Michael Barres's like assassin character who you know served overseas with Ben Affleck, right? But and that sort of gets funneled into, like I said, there was at some point along the line, the more. The farther away you get from the beginning of the Iraq War and the War on Terror, these themes become these sort of most prominent themes happen in the movies made about that those subjects, which is uh, obviously like torture was a big theme in a lot of movies about this. Uh, Abu Ghraib was a huge uh, inspiration for a lot of movies. We see it up until today with the card counter having you know such a such a strong tie like a literal like not even like you know a fictionalized tie to abu Ghraib. um but blackwater was a big one blackwater was the for anybody writing a sort of political conspiracy thriller 
in those like late aughts into the teens that was a huge inspiration for a lot of stuff because it was it's sort of it had it all right it was shadowy uh government mil- like military industrial complex stuff combined with corporate villainy so it was kind of the perfect storm for uh, putting something in your movie that was just like a combination of all the anxieties we have about the big government versus uh, all the anxieties we have about big corporations and and sort of all into one should we maybe get into the uh 60 second plot description yeah so can, like, why not kind of tie this to some of the stuff that actually happens in the motion picture state of play yes. directed by kevin mcdonald we'll get into that as joe mentioned the credited screenwriters are matthew michael carnahan tony gilroy and billy ray there's an uncredited rewrite done by peter morgan the film stars russell crowe ben affleck helen mirren rachel mcadams robin wright jason bateman harry lennox jeff daniels michael barres and viola davis Woo! uh it premiered wide april 17th 2009 after being pushed from an end of the year release we will talk about that joseph yes are you prepared to give a 60 second plot description of state of play not in the slightest <laughs> <laughs> let's do this though. well uh you better get ready because your 60 second plot description of state of play starts now all right so the movie begins with there's a pickpocket on the run from somebody and he gets shot and and he was carrying a briefcase and it gets stolen and then the pizza delivery guy who witnessed this also gets shot and he doesn't die but he ends up in the hospital around the same time i think maybe the next day a young dc staffer gets uh she gets pushed seemingly she dies at the on the dc metro in front of a dc metro train and the question is was she pushed and was it a murder and so this uh staffer was working for uh Congressman Ben Affleck, who's leading hearings into a Blackwater-esque corporation. So Russell Crowe plays a reporter for the quote-unquote Washington Globe, uh, who is an old friend of Affleck's who goes looking into this, and Rachel McAdams plays the digital reporter for that uh, paper. And so she and Crowe have a uh, you know contentious relationship, but they end up uh, uh, investigating this, and that the ties go deep, and there's corruption into uh, Blackwater, and the staffer was having an affair with Affleck, and then she was pregnant, and and we find out all these things and eventually we find out that ben affleck was and that's uh, uh employing an assassin to knock her off yeah yeah didn't even mention robin wright as the superfluous I mean, woman like who comes between scenes with her maybe She's some a- of the best scenes in the movie but so inconsequential like when she brings ben affleck to basically confess yes. the affair portion of it it's almost like she's taking him to the principal's office or something yes. and that is her function in the movie that Robert angle is amazing though that angle was such an important part of the miniseries that it's it's i'm not surprised that it got kept into the movie because it was so uh, sort of foundational to the miniseries, but it, there's this inferred like they used to be her and Russell Crowe used to be together when well they were all like the three of college. them friends right and they had they've always had this sort of attraction to each other but the thing is in the movie there's just not enough time to explore that properly so i almost feel like the movie would have been better off just sort of nixing her character or like taking away that element of uh, of the wife character and just concentrating on the fact that they are old friends and that's the kind of uh, 
corrupting influence of politics and, and journalism upon one another. Um, because I just don't think the movie has enough time to do it justice, even though you're right, Robin Wright is really good in this movie. Yeah. She and Crow, I think, are the two best performances in it. I don't love Russell Crowe, and we'll talk about Russell Crowe soon, but Robin Wright is just like... This is like the uh, vein of Robin Wright before Cards of House of Cards happens, which yes. like so many of the plot threads in this also happen on House yes. of Cards. Yep. Um, oh, down to like the the staffer shoved in front of the DC Metro, like right. literally, like they totally stole that. Yeah. Um. It, but she just like shows up in these roles, like girl with a dragon tattoo, and it's like you are giving so much more than like you need to, and it like makes her seem like the most fleshed out person because like she has a yeah. great gift at just being a conceivable human on screen. With like when sometimes like this movie, she's surrounded by people who are just doing serviceable work. I think she essentially plays the uh, stern police captain in Blade Runner 2049 and yet her death has such a impact on the audience because of what she invests into that performance and she's so mm-hmm. because she's so good and like that's a perfect example I'm so of, curious about how much of her performance was cut out of the movie Blade Runner or this Blade Runner Oh yeah because like she is so like very specific in that movie I so, mean like, yeah I don't really know how much again. more you know, there was to go with that character on the page, but she just, she invests so much good stuff into it. And she's really fantastic. But yeah, state of play. I think she's sort of on an Island, unfortunately, without a whole ton to do. And the more exciting stuff, like, you know, I love a political thriller, you know, anytime that this movie started to resemble the Pelican brief was my favorite parts of the movie. <laughs> so, you know, a, a chase through a, through the Watergate parking garage, first of all, which is just like, that was, you know, obviously an homage to, um, all the president's men is all the stuff, you know, happening with the Watergate here. And, that was exciting. That yeah, was like fun. there's a whole plot thread that it's like, it's happening in Watergate in the same room. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, we get it. We get it. The weak stuff is unfortunately the granular journalism stuff, which was the strength of the miniseries. And I think that's the big disconnect with where this movie doesn't really make it happen is you have Helen Mirren, who is recast in the uh, the Bill Nye role. And she's sort of the, she's got to keep the, the, interests of the newspaper and its uh, owners and she's got to keep everybody happy and turn a profit and she's you know putting the screws to russell crowe and rachel mcadams for them to get the the story right and to get it published and it just feels very surfacey unfortunately whereas in the miniseries obviously with so much more time like bill nye's character was a much more uh richly sort of drawn character also like i said in the miniseries you had the mcavoy character who is his son in that so there's a whole other character that she could have had to play off of uh that mirren could have had to play off of i was wondering who mcavoy basically played in this series because i was like did they re is rachel mcadams in the mcavoy role no kelly mcdonald is the rachel mcadams in the miniseries the great kelly mcdonald the great kelly mcdonald yeah um and yeah, so the McAvoy character from the miniseries is just cut out entirely, which is too bad. Um, 
But yeah, because that mirror that Mirren character is very like it's Helen Mirren showing up to give a big monologue about like chastising her two employees, but also yeah. essentially the state of journalism because she's like, if you're holding on to this more salacious story and not running it yeah. because you think it's beneath us, like we're gonna lose the story entirely, you know. Plus, like you know, well, getting and s- people to read their paper. And speaking of two thousand nine movies. It felt like she felt like a less vulgar version of Peter Capaldi and in, in the loop who just sort of like shows up to insult people <laughs> in a British accent and then leaves. Um, but yeah, she apparently filmed this uh, role in four days and I believe I it. believe it. Yes, that's that tracks, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, the cast in this movie is absolutely insane. Like it's a hugely... I would argue overqualified cast, especially when you have things like Jeff Daniels showing up for like two scenes as a corrupt uh, politician, Jason Bateman, who is, who is an interesting fit. The Jason Bateman character in the miniseries is much more of a sort of a fuck boy kind of a, he's he's a lot more fun. I feel like in, in the miniseries, he also, his, yeah. And Jason Bateman just basically has greasy hair in this. Jason Bateman makes like half a sentence nod towards like being bisexual. Whereas like the bisexuality of the character becomes like important in the miniseries and the Tom Burke character sort of, you know, seduces him to get information out of him. And, um, but down to like Viola Davis as like, a medical examiner and and this was the year <laughs> after doubt so like she's already an oscar like obviously when she filmed it she wasn't an oscar nominee but um by the time this movie comes out she's already an oscar nominee uh david harbour this is one of david harbour's earliest roles uh the year after revolutionary road as a spy for a scene zoe lister jones shows up for like half a second barry shabaka henley uh it's just it's a it's a deep cast harry lennox as the as the police detective uh a deep cast but not in a movie that is a deep bench of characters if that makes sense i feel like the cast is deeper than the characters which it it, i think the casting is what and like the lack of interest and intrigue in the characterizations is a real sign of the kind of meat grinder this movie went through in terms of a production history because it started as a very like prominent script. It was on the 06 blacklist. It was a project for uh, Brad Pitt in the Russell Crowe role for a while. I'm supposed to reunite him with Edward Norton after fight club, which would have been a huge deal. It kept getting pushed partly for like Brad Pitt's schedule, but then also the writer's strike happens. Right. So, and Brad Pitt eventually leaves and it gets pushed again. Right. So Matthew Michael Carnahan was writing the script for it. It's interesting. I always find it a little eyebrow raising when an adap- when an adaptation is a blacklist script where I was just like, did the state of play script like really need to be on the blacklist? It's an adaptation of a very right. hugely popular British miniseries, but whatever. Um, Matthew Michael Carnahan with the script, he had to step away for family reasons. And then the writer's strike happened. And because of the writer's strike, I'm trying to rem- I'm trying to get the order of things. Maybe he had to step away later. But the the problem with the writer's strike was Brad Pitt had issues with the script as it was and as they were ready to go 
to to filming with. And because of the writer strike, he and the writer weren't able to work that stuff out. So essentially, uh, is it Paramount? Is the studio decided we're just going to go? We can't we can't edit we can't rewrite this anymore because of the strike and so we're just going to go with it as is and brad pitt was like well as is i don't want to do it and so there was a whole thing there was talk of like breach of contract and all this other stuff and eventually they had to recast his role with uh russell crowe and by that point gilroy's doing a rewrite and at some point billy ray is doing a rewrite so it was just kind of a mess that the writer strike really complicated and in retrospect it would have been an interesting role for brad pitt to have taken at that point in his career i think i think the movie still has its problem has the same problems that it does like a, a lot most of the problems for this are on the page but i think pitt's an interesting cast for that for the journalism for the or the journalist character this is kind of a weird was a weird time for Brad Pitt, right? Because yeah, it's around when was Mister and Mrs. Smith? That oh, was five oh five. So, what does he do instead of this in Glorious Bastards? Well, that definitely came out in oh nine. Um, I'm not sure what the cause and effect of this was. I, the, the the Russell Crowe of it was that he had to balance making this with Robin Hood, which at the time was uh, Nottingham. <laughs> um, the Ridley Scott Robin Hood, which I've still never seen. I have um, still never seen. It is theoretical to me in my mind. There are one too many Robin... <laughs> not one. There's like 17 too many Robin Hoods. I will never see the rest yeah. of them. But <laughs> also, isn't he like shaved head? Not like bald shaved head, but like buzzed... In Robin Hood, and yeah. he has wondrous frilly locks in this movie. There's a note in the Wikipedia page for State of Play that s- talks about how that links to, uh, which is kind of adorable, they filmed some scenes at a high school in Maryland, I guess. And uh, the high school newspaper got to do a story about, like, the you know, Hollywood came to film a scene at our high school, and they let them interview with, like, Russell Crowe and Rachel McAdams and whatnot. And there's a little tidbit in there talking about how uh, Rachel McAdams sort of teasing that, like, Russell was spending a lot of time in hair and makeup to try and hide his long hair that he was growing out for Robin Hood, which to me seems like the exact opposite of what happened which was he does have the long hair in state of play and he has very short hair in robin hood so i don't know whether the anecdote got garbled or whether at some point the hair got longer for state of play they said fuck it and then at some point (laughs) in robin hood they were like cut it all off i don't know i don't know what's going on does he have to cut his hair gi jane style in robin hood i genuinely have anybody who has seen the ridley scott robin hood like hook us up let us know if there's a gi jane scene (laughs) in that movie uh we should we deserve to know about it so uh, yeah, maybe Kate Blanchett just like takes a rusty takes scissors. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I guess Pitt does end up doing Inglorious Bastards. Although I feel like Brad Pitt was attached to that one for a while, so hmm. I don't know what. Again, I don't know what the cause and effect was with his. Career. I'm curious how the writers strike affected inglorious bastards because tarantino is not a member of the writers guild yeah maybe that was 
how he was able to make such a good movie during that that period when a lot of movies kind of got hamstrung. So one of these days, I'm going to really do a deep dive into all of the movies that got fucked up by the writer's strike and how, because I feel like that is a very, uh, that is a vast sort of, I understand that that was a thing that that the writer strike was a thing that affected a lot of movies. I just was so much more plugged into its effect on television at the time because it was so immediate where mm-hmm. all these shows had to essentially like, you know, truncate their seasons. And that was the year that I was working at Bravo and I was so excited to be on the same floor as SNL. And then the strike happened. And so there was no SNL on the floor. I was just like, damn it. Um, <laughs> but... Well, I remember the writer's strike more specifically and how it affected awards season oh, well, because yes. that's the year of no Golden Globes. There was almost no Oscars. It was kind of like the Oscars were like this looming deadline of trying to like get the strike to yes. Yes. complete so that or get, you know, an agreement made so that the Oscars could happen. Um, it felt like that was the carrot to getting the studios to make a concession because the studios deeply needed the Oscars in order to goose box office for, you know, whatever, you know, the the traditional Oscar effect on the box office, a thing that hopefully will once again be a thing when, uh, I don't know. I keep saying when things go back to normal. I know that's I know that's not a thing anymore. I know back to normal is no longer a possibility. When uh, I think the closest to getting back to normal box office wise is when studios are actually fucking releasing movies um on a regular yeah. basis and promoting them and you know. Yeah. Still not there yet. Providing clarity to viewers of like what is exclusively theatrical and like because I do think that there's a certain confusion for viewers right now that like if they yeah. don't understand where they can see something and when they can see something they'll just wait. I think that's true. And I, I that's also feel like there is still a sizable chunk of the population that's just not going to go to a movie when there's still some semblance of a pandemic out there and it's partly that group of people it's partly also you know there's just not casual movie going where it's just yes. like casual movie going like, we're going to a movie now. tonight yeah. what are we seeing i don't know we'll figure it out later yeah casual movie going is done at home and i wonder if that will ever come back and i wonder if we're just going to have to figure out ways to prioritize the theatrical experience in other ways and i have to think that in a lot of ways it's going to be holding on to some kind of exclusivity because what else do you have like Mm -hmm. that's the reason why spider-man was the only real blockbuster of the post-pandemic time it's because people felt like they needed to see it before they got spoiled on it and before they got left out of the loop and it's because there was exclusivity there if you release that day and date you could have just watched it at home and made sure that you didn't you know find out about the spoilers another way so uh, you can't do that with everything obviously and you can't do that with you know i don't know what's a you know you can't do that with worst person in the world you know what i mean but um i don't know they're gonna have to figure it out figure it out you know it was a casual uh a casual movie goer movie state of play oh that's the thing i mean you look at this I, I feel like I make this note on so many of these movies of just like this would have been a TV show now, which is a dumb thing to say because it was a TV show before it was this. And also, I did I did feel like 
you look at something like this and just like, well, obviously it didn't get an Oscar nomination because things like that weren't getting Oscar nominations by that point. But then you look and like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy got an Oscar nominations just two years later. And that was, if not the exact same thing, playing in a pretty similar sandbox, I would say. Right. And those things are harder to score with these days, Oscar wise, but it is still possible. People still predicted the hell out of this movie, though, when it was supposed to be an end of the year thing because of the pedigree that was involved when it's like, you know, when it's being run through the meat grinder, like maybe at that point you realize this is not going to be what it originally was. And like, I don't know, Brad Pitt, I still think, I think you're right just to the extent that I think Brad Pitt is a more interesting actor and a more interesting movie star than Russell Crowe. Yeah. But... I mean, and Russell Crowe is like, you want to talk about casual moviegoer. This is like the era of him making casual moviegoer movies that are just like, not a lot of these, aside from maybe American Gangster, were movies that people were excited to see on their own. And it was just like, okay, yeah, date night movie for adults what are we gonna go see i guess body of lies so when does the the mercer hotel phone throwing incident happen i thought that was during the beautiful mind oscar season i think it was later i could be wrong i think it was later than that it might have been i also they get very easily conflated with he shoved the bafta producer yes okay the mercer hotel incident was June of 05. So that wasn't till after... So that's even after Master and Commander. Yes. So it was like, yes, it was during... It was pre-release for Cinderella Man. I think that's probably why he was in New York. He was probably doing, I guess, press for Cinderella Man. Not great. The other thing about the Russell <laughs> We Crow are film, the Cinderella Man historians this month on this podcast. We're yeah. just talking about Cinderella Man. I tried to text my friend who worked for worked at the Mercer Hotel around that time because uh, I, I wanted details. Because I feel like when you hear today a celebrity threw a phone at someone and you think, well, a cell phone. And cell phones were smaller back then. But I'm pretty sure it was like the hotel desk phone that he threw. Oh, like in um, a lot. And there was contention. He says that he threw the phone. What's that? Oh, it happened like in the yeah. lobby. It all happened in the lobby of this hotel. And and he claims that he threw it and it hit the wall and that the guy cut himself. He got a cut uh, on his face. And he says that the guy cut himself running away from him, which is not the defense that you think it is, actually. <laughs> and and he's he was defending himself on these things like, well, like years and years and years later. He's never really actually like come out and been like, I shouldn't have done that. That was bad. Like, it was still being like, what are you going to do? I was mad. I couldn't call my wife. And so I threw a phone against a wall. And then this, you know, this guy ran away from me and he cut his face. And it's just like, that's still not a story. Even if all of that is true, which grain of salt, like, you wouldn't believe with, obviously, you know, just his side of the story. But even if all of that is true, that's not a good story for you. That's not a good Russell Crowe story. It's still, you know hugely problematic and whatever and abusive and and wrong anyway well and then he was like trying to like joke about it but it wasn't funny on was it the baftas or was it the australian oscars i'm not sure would it have been like like a light of it in a way that was kind of cringy yes 
He's ne- yes, he's never uh he's never been at all contrite about that. So yeah, the back half of the aughts is an odd time for him. He makes two Ridley Scott movies. He makes A Good Year, which again, I do feel like we all throw around the term this movie doesn't exist uh, too much anymore. Maybe we should all take a break from it. And yet, how else am I supposed to describe A Good Year? A movie that is directed a, by a Ridley Russell Scott Crow, and does Ridley not Scott wine movie should have more of an imprint just for being strange, right? Like It was definitely the first time I remember Marion Cotillard's name sort of no cuz she's in Big Fish, right? No, she's in both. Right, but Big Fish was like years before. That was the first. Right. That was the first time. But anyway, um one of the few times that I remember paying attention to Marion Cotillard before uh the Oscar. Well, then, because when when Love Young Rose was happening, part of the campaign was like, she's not a stranger to you. She was in a good year. And it's like, yeah, the movie that no one saw. Sorry, when I say Rid- uh, Russell Crowe made two Ridley Scott movies, what I meant to say was Ridley Scott made four, or Russell Crowe made four Ridley Scott movies because it's A Good Year in 06, American Gangster in 07, Body of Lies in 08, and Robin Hood in 2010. It really did Christ. seem like Russell Crowe was kind of persona non grata for a lot of people after the phone throwing. And he was like, what other ornery bastard will shelter me during these, <laughs> these hard years? <laughs> and he's just found Ridley Scott because... But two of those are like the most forgettable Ridley Scott movies. Nobody talks about Body of Lies. No. And nobody talks about Robin Hood. Well, and nobody talks about A Good Year. Again, the only one of those that anybody saw was American Gangster. And that's because of Denzel. Yes. But even yeah, American you... Gangster, if I remember correctly, was considered somewhat of a box office disappointment because I think... Right. Didn't it struggle to get to $100 million or it, like, it didn't? But that was the movie that like a lot of people really liked. A lot of people stuck up for that movie and made the case for it. It was a seen as a successful Denzel movie. He was at least in the Oscar conversation. And then, of mm-hmm. course, Ruby D gets nominated. So like that movie at least was a player. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 07, he also, Russell Crowe is also in 310 to Yuma, which feels like much more of a Russell Crowe movie, even though, uh, uh, who's the other? It's Christian Bale, right? Yes. He's the other and guy. Uh, it's a James Mangold movie, right? Yeah, I always I weirdly like, think like, of... I'm not sure about stuff today. Um, but that's that's a movie that there's always, like, justice for 310 to Yuma people. I am not a Westerns guy, as you know, and I actually like 310 to Yuma, so I give that, I grade that on a big curve. I'm like, if I like a Western, it's got to be pretty good. Uh, I weirdly, I'm a weirdo, so I think of that movie as a Ben Foster, Logan Lerman joint, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> Boy, you talk about like anger balls in a movie and like Russell Crowe and Christian Bale, uh, like the set of that movie must have been a real fucking time. I'll say that. People have very much forgotten the, I mean, because who remembers Terminator Salvation, but the Terminator, Terminator Salvation, uh, rant from Christian Bale that got leaked and then got songified into like the great techno, what don't you fucking understand song? I, so the thing that I remember most about that is way too many people kind of falling over themselves to be like, the man demands perfection on his movie set. And that's why we love him as an actor. So like, 
why are we why are we giving him a heart like so many people were trying to carry water for him with that and it was just like even if you feel like maybe some like that the man shouldn't go to prison for yelling at a production staffer on the set like we don't need to actually like turn this into well this is actually a good thing and not a bad thing right he's a he's passionate about his work it's just like no he was an asshole on the set we can say that right like we can actually like there was this weird sense of rallying around christian bale to defend him from like people who like not just the normal online cretins who like i don't expect any more of them but like people who should have known better i think really kind of stuck up for him in that moment and that was weird to me especially for that movie. <laughs> right Right, exactly. Like, that's the movie. Like, I guess maybe <laughs> this flip side of that is just like, well, of course he was frustrated he was making that piece of shit movie. It's just like, okay. But, like, again, if you are a person in a position of power, this is the same thing with the Russell Crowe thing. Just, like, don't let that shit run downhill. Don't let people who are subordinate to you and make a whole lot less money and have no power and could get fired, you know, at the snap of a finger because you're so powerful. Don't, you know, abuse your position in that way. It's a It's a dick thing to do. We can all say right. that. We can all admit that. Anyway. Um, this era of Russell Crowe, though, yeah. like, even though it's, like, mostly um, <laughs> Ridley Scott movies that no one saw or, like, a few people care about or still talk about. Right. It's this insistence that Russell Crowe was a movie star, which, like, we certainly felt post-Gladiator and, like, A Beautiful Mind, like, tried to... Or A Beautiful Mind was a movie we both hate, but, you know, That's positioned star him movie. as yeah. the, pres- the prestige movie star. And, like, you and can that see movie from made the response money, of too, this movie that, like, audiences didn't necessarily feel that way. And it's, like, it was a match. Uh, and, of course, The Insider is part of this, too, because he's incredible in The Insider. Yeah. But, like, I don't... He's not... He was. I think he was he was a movie star for a limited amount of time. He also I think movie star kinds of pushes things towards a conversation about box office viability that I think is def I do think is distinct from a leading man. You know what I mean? And he mm-hmm. still does project in a lot of these sort of late two thousands movies, project the aura of a leading man. And that is still important. And I think State of Play does benefit from that. And, like, he's not going to make this movie a whole lot of money. But I do feel like if you have a movie where you need to essentially have two bonafide leading men sort of going toe-to-toe in this movie, you could do worse than Crow and Affleck. We'll talk about Affleck in a second and his attempts at uh, the, the mayor of Easttown accent that he doesn't quite commit to. Um, but... Before we get off of Russell Crowe, what I think is interesting is he's in this sort of, again, late aughts wilderness where he's, you know, hiding behind uh, uh, Ridley Scott's apron, essentially. Uh, And he emerges in 2012 with Les Mis and then 2013 with Man of Steel. And now it's like late era Russell Crowe, which is, you know... A little more Zoftig, Russell Crowe, a little older, a little more, you know, he's elder statesman at this point where, you know, Inspector Javert, like watching him try and sing was 
Jesus. kind of adorable. Like, it, it did a weird thing to his image where he was so bad at that that it was hard to find him intimidating anymore and find him kind of uh, this sort of ferocious thing where, like, you know, he's scowling at Steve Martin when Steve Martin makes a joke about him at the Oscars and things like that. And I think something about his performance as Inspector Javert, you look at that and you're just like, well, this is a cuddly teddy bear who can't sing worth a damn. Like, this is kind of weird. And like, it, it made him weirdly more likable. And then he gets into things like he's Superman's dad and Man of Steel. He's, uh, like anybody who was in Winter's Tale is just automatically, like, how can you, you can't, like, have actual strong feelings about anything because it's just so silly. It's just so kind of ridiculous. Um, and he's playing like Noah and even things like the Shane Black movie, The Nice Guys, which I really like. And I actually think he's really good in it. But like his whole I hated role that movie, is that, like, but like that was a perfect role for him to like be interesting. again. Uh, I loved that movie. I thought he and Gosling were so good in that one. Um, but yeah, so now we have this sort of like na- this new conception of Russell Crowe that is so far removed from Maximus Russell Crowe and... Uh, it's interesting. I do feel like Les Mis was the one that like unlocked that, interestingly enough. Do we want to jump over to Affleck? Sure, because, I mean, talk about somebody who is constantly back and forth in terms <laughs> of public favor, even in the span of like weeks at a time. Uh, this is kind of an upswing moment for Ben Affleck, sort of, because it's sort two of. years after Gone Baby Gone, which, like, got maybe the reviews were even more respectable because people were surprised because yes. Ben Affleck was coming off of such a negative in like uh coming off of a valley in the peaks and valley of public favor. Yes. Gone Baby Gone kind of rescued him from uh one of his co- career wildernesses and the narrative at that moment was oh Maybe this is what Ben Affleck should have should be doing now is directing things. And especially a big thing about Gone Baby Gone was he was directing a movie that he himself wasn't starring in. And mm-hmm. so I think people, you know, sort of moved to the Redford thing. of Because the thing about Robert Redford is not only was he an actor director, but a lot of his movies that he directed and a lot of the better ones, especially were the ones that he didn't star in, like Ordinary People and Quiz Show, right? And so yeah. Affleck, I think a lot of people thought that would be the same thing. And yet, almost immediately, his next two movies that he directs, he stars in, The Town and Argo. And obviously, like, those movies were not negatives on his career. Like, that worked out for him. But I thought it was so funny that, like, it kind of goes into my conception of him, which is that, and it's not it doesn't make him a villain, but like he is a guy with a healthy sense of ego, right? He is a guy who, if he had have his have his druthers, he would not remain out of the spotlight for very long. And so, after Gone Baby Gone, like to take a role in a movie like he's just not that into you. Why? What is you know? It's not an acting challenge. It's like a, that's a. I mean, a I'm role sure he take. was on set in that movie for like three days. Sure, but that's a role that you take either you're hard up for money or you're hard up for attention, and it's one of the two. <laughs> it could be both. 
I think it's probably more the latter than the former in that case, but whatever. Um, state of play, I get, I get taking the role where like it's a it's a good role based on something that was proven to be good. So mm-hmm. that makes sense to me, and it also makes sense to me when he's doing things like Terrence Malick movies and whatnot, or you know, Gone Girl, which is another one that seems like such a good role, and he was great in that movie, perfectly cast. Um, but things like you know, he's just not that into you or the company men or uh runner runner. Like Runner why? Runner is also the movie with Justin Timberlake, right? Yes. Oh which I've never seen. boy. Yeah. I never saw it yes. either. Not a real movie. So Affleck continues to confound me. Uh other things that confound me, I did mention the the Eastern Pennsylvania accent work that he's doing here which (laughs) really truly comes and goes like he's it seems like he's trying to do it but he's also not sure if he can pull it off so he only really deploys it maybe every third sentence or so and it really makes you appreciate that somebody like kate winslet just like dove into the deep end of the pool with hers and was just like if i'm gonna do it i'm gonna fucking do it and here we go at what point in the movie did you realize he was trying to do that accent? How long did it take? <laughs> Probably 45 minutes in. It was a while, right? Yeah. Affleck is a weird presence in this movie because we're supposed to believe that he went to college with Russell Crowe. Already there's a problem there. <laughs> yes. It, it feels very like you're sa- like you were saying it feels weird for his career because he would have filmed this after Gone Baby Gone had like been released and I don't, it, it feels like he was maybe available and like a fifth or sixth choice for this role. Like it doesn't, there's something he, about him in this that doesn't fit. He's better casting than Edward Norton would have been for the role. Just in terms of, I can see Affleck playing a uh, fallible politician a lot more than I can. I don't know who votes for Edward Norton. into into congress whereas like i can see people voting for ben affleck he's got this like golden boy sort of appeal to him and he also feels like somebody who could smile in your face and and lie to you and that i think is is crucial to the character and i suppose this is fair right yeah but i also don't think he's that good in the role like, I don't think it's a good performance. Yeah, I don't think he's good either. I think he's part of the kind of blandification of this movie, who, strangely, I also felt that way about, because this is a performer I usually really like, but I didn't understand why she was there, is Rachel McAdams. Like, Rachel McAdams, to me, is a, re- a performer who you can kind of rely on to make things more interesting than they should be, or, like, yeah. on the page, and I think... What's it like? I think the key example of that is like the movie that's most similar to what this is trying to be, and that's Spotlight. Where I was like, going to say, I, I'm glad that Rachel McAdams has gone through her journalism paces that she went from State of Play to Morning Glory to eventually Spotlight, and she gets finally gets her laurels for Spotlight for sort of she's you know graduated J school and now she's uh, you know on a good story and reporting it well, and she gets a nomination for Spotlight. Has she played a journalist in anything else, or is it just those three? 
I guess journalist is stretching it with Morning Glory, but she's a news producer, right? So <laughs> it's conceivable that she has, and there's certainly like movies I haven't seen, like The Time Traveler's Wife or the but... Malik. She's is she in one Malik or multiple Maliks? Just the one, right? I believe it's just to the wonder to the walls to the, her and her and Affleck. It's interesting. It's there's a lot of. Uh, uh, Rachel McAdams double dipping because it's she's in this one with Affleck along with To the Wonder to the Wall. Um, she's in this with Jason Bateman. Like I said it's an odd prequel to Date Night or Game Night rather, not Date Night. Uh, to Game Night. And did she end up in anything else with Russell Crowe again after this? I wonder. I don't think so. It's interesting that she's in About Time with Bill Nye, and Bill Nye uh, was initially considered to be to reprise his role as uh, as the role that Helen Mirren ends up taking. So it could have been a uh, a Bill Nye double dip as well. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but she she was maybe I expected less from Affleck, so like he bothered yeah. me less, even though I thought he was boring. But like I expected her to offer a yeah. little bit more than this kind of nothing character because she's done that before what especially drove me crazy is how she was costumed in this movie you it's, texted me about this it yes. is late aughts hell in terms of like uh uh, uh <laughs> separates put together at <laughs> target she wears this like peplum scoop neck that's layered under just like a basic t-shirt and it felt like the late 2000s were coming back to haunt me it's like the color combination was like a dark blue with a chocolate brown joe what was her bottom layer oh gosh it's chocolate (laughs) shut up i hate you (laughs) i was like what are you setting me up for you monster um uh, yeah i you texted me about it and you were like, this is horrifying. And I was like... <laughs> Be- mostly just because I felt like it was a time capsule in the worst way of, you know, 2008. I was like, how bad could it be? And then i watching the movie and I was like, oh, okay, I get it now. They, they did our girl dirty. Yeah. Uh, it's a... It's a really terribly underwritten role. She really is bo- basically there to be like i'm writing half of the story too you know she says that like four times in the movie and <laughs> and to represent um digital journalism but in this kind of even like half-assed way where it's like if you want to make the point that digital journalism is shallow and um not up to the task of all of this you need to at least then make her character start off at least as embodying like embodying those traits it would have been unfair and dumb but at least like have the courage of your convictions and ultimately in this i'm just like why are we supposed to feel like she is that there is any conflict between the two of them and the two of their styles when we don't really see her have much of a style we don't get a chance to see her in her element at all or have so, like a point of view, not necessarily right. provide anything substantial because the movie really just wants to follow Russell Crowe. And like you get the final beat where he gives her the top billing on their byline. Right. But it's like, okay. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just this what, like half ass thing for? about like blocker, uh, bloggers and journalists, whatever. Um, but I don't know. I love Rachel McAdams. I do too. 
Um, we haven't had her for a while. No, I think we haven't. I think we did Family Stone and Morning Glory, and maybe that's it. When it comes oh, I to... meant like in a new project. Oh, so what's the last time I that see. we've seen her. Well, um, Eurovision Song Contest. Oh, the the exquisite Eurovision Song Contest. Eurovision Song Contest, Game Night, Disobedience. Like that; those are the movies she made in between. God, she's wonderful. Doctor Strange movies. So she's going to be in the new Doctor Strange uh, coming out, which I'm excited for. But like, she is of all of the like underwritten Marvel love interests, she's really the biggest victim of that. Like, just like let her go. Like, just like literally, just like cut her off and let her fly away. Um, although I get that it's a it's uh, it's a fine fine paycheck. She's also in an upcoming adaptation of the Judy Bloom novel Are You There God? It's me Margaret where Who's I imagine doing that because uh, it's someone made It's Kelly Freeman Craig from uh Edge of 17, the writer uh, director yes. of Edge of 17. So that's exciting. She plays I would imagine the mom. Oh god, you know who's in that? Every single time I see this person in a cast list and it's like a big stinking turd in the middle of something that I'm really excited for. Oh, Freaking no. Benny Softie. Like, Your fave. As I said after Licorice Pizza, like, you are fully empowered to not cast Benny Softie in your movie. Like, it is entirely within your power to do that. There is no financial imperative to do it it's not like we got to cast this guy to like get our get ourselves some financing or whatever you're just doing it for weird indie clout and it's annoying and stop doing it there is no benefit to casting <laughs> benny safty in your movie stop please. if he's supposed to be the dad i i will say i don't buy him and rachel mcadams as a couple at all not at all um Kathy Bates is also in that movie, though, which is good. But Jesus Christ. Anyway, yeah, I agree Rachel with McAdams you. is too good for you, Benny Safdie. Exactly. Exactly. Um, oh, by the way, another uh, uh, co-star twinning in this movie. She's in uh, State of Play with Robin Wright, and the both of them would be in, uh, in a few years, both star in A Most Wanted Man, which is another movie that tries to play in the... Uh, sort of political thriller sandbox. That's another John Le Carre adaptation after uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And another um, movie where Rachel McAdams is giving way more than what's on the page. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, that's a movie that I remember watching, I remember enjoying, and there was just no hook to it, unfortunately. There was no... Was that after... Was that the last movie that was released before Philip Seymour Hoffman died, or the first movie that was released after he died? I think it was released after. It had played Sundance. It had played Sundance in January of 2014. Uh, He died on Super Bowl Sunday in 2014, so that was like early February. And then uh, the movie was released in the United States that summer. So yeah. Um, Yeah. Not a bad movie, but not a movie I really remember a ton about. A Most Wanted Man. We could do it. For I remember podcast. it being good. Yeah, if we did it, it'll I'll probably devolve into tears because like his death still like yeah <laughs> hits me sideways. Um, yeah, we should do more Philip Seymour Hoffman though. We don't really have a ton. We haven't really done a ton of his movies, and we should. Anyway, 
What else? Let's do we talk, about, talk about um, Kevin McDonald because you yeah. had bragging rights over Last King of Scotland. I remember as like one of the early predictors, like this movie is going to be a thing. I did and it's partly because of his documentary work that you. I loved One Day in September quite a bit. That was the documentary where he won the Academy Award. It was about the uh, terrorist actions at the Munich Olympics. And I that was back when, I mean, that's 1999, so I was not plugged into uh, movies to the point where I was following documentaries, right? I was still pretty, you know, surface level in terms of following movies, following Oscars. And so that one, I can't remember how that one exactly came across my notice, but I remember at one of the Summer Olympics, whether it was the Atlanta ones in 96 or even like might have been Barcelona in 92, but they did. It was probably Barcelona, actually, because it would have been the 20th anniversary of the Munich Games. And they did a little uh, package where they kind of a retrospective on what had happened at the Munich Games. And I remember being fascinated by it. It was a new story that I had never really heard of and because uh, I was 12. Um, and watching about it, and I was just like riveted and fascinated and then, you know, devastated to find out at the end that, you know, the famous... A news clip where he says they're all gone they all you know all the hostages were killed and so i was very into uh seeing this movie one day in september and i thought it was really good there was i i think critically it was a little it's you know the documentary feature winner very often is maybe not the most critically lauded documentary but maybe the most accessible yeah uh, to a lot of people and so i feel like reviews on that one were maybe a little bit more mixed than you might expect from a best documentary feature winner, but I really thought it was really well put together and it was, it benefits a lot from being about an incredibly compelling story, but I think it was a documentary where you really sort of edge of your seat watching that movie, watching it unfold. Mm-hmm. And then he had also directed uh, touching the void, which is a documentary about a uh, mountain, a uh, mountain climbing uh accident i guess uh, which if i remember correctly that was like hit documentary on the scale of like documentaries you know i believe so a movie that made money by documentary standards right so i think between the two of those hollywood was you know interested to see what he would be able to do with a narrative feature and so the last king of scotland is a searchlight movie yes am i wrong Yes, it's a searchlight yes, movie. It's a searchlight movie. And uh I did sort of that was one of those movies that was really sort of like there wasn't a whole ton of spotlight on it a year ahead of time, but I remember being like, "Oh, I really like Kevin McDonald as a director. This is a really interesting role for Forrest Whitaker playing Edie Amin." And so I was like, "Maybe this will be something." And then like who, you know, Lo and behold, it premieres behold. at I believe Telluride. I think that's right. Let's see. And then Forrest Whitaker has no challenger for the rest of the year. Absolutely none. It's crazy. Couldn't uh, not even poor Peter O'Toole could uh, scrounge up much of a much of a challenge to him. Yeah, and so who I also he... believe premiered at that Telluride. Venus, Roger Michel's Venus. Yes. Uh, yeah. Maybe, he so he directs. Maybe one uh, of them was Venice, but yeah. He directs one more uh, documentary before between. Uh, Last King of Scotland and State of Play. It's called My Enemy's Enemy. It's about Klaus Barbie and uh, 
Che Guevara, and that doesn't really make much of a splash. And then so State of Play, I feel like, was the one where it felt like the stars were kind of aligning. He felt like the perfect person to make that movie because a lot of uh, One Day in September felt like it unfolded like a political thriller. And so Mm -hmm. this felt like a a natural kind of transition for him. And I almost would have liked to have seen, I guess you talk about like, how would this movie have been made today? And the answer is it wouldn't because you would just make the British version available somewhere, right? It would go to Hulu. It would go to HBO Max. It would go to, Mm -hmm. you know, somewhere. And so you wouldn't bother even making an Americanized remake of it. But um, certainly if you had made an American version of it as a miniseries, I would have been interested to see what McDonald would have been able to do with that. It's interesting that he hasn't done any like television, considering yes. the type of genre he usually yes. works in, usually in some type of thriller or thriller-adjacent type of film. He is somewhat of a This Head Oscar Buzzy director, because his most recent movie is The Mauritanian. Everybody remembers The Mauritanian, right? right? Mauritanian came so close to getting not only... Uh, an Oscar nomination, but like was kind of on the cusp of like a few Oscar nominations. I feel like people really thought Tahar it was in the mix Heem for a lot. Was on the cusp. It probably was on the cusp for like uh, a screenplay potential. Like, and then Jodie Foster obviously wins the Golden Globe for supporting actress, so she was really in the conversation for supporting actress. I would have liked to have seen how close she came. Where where do you think she finished in terms of? what place in voting for supporting actress last year see this is the conversation that you and katie and i have that it's like you can remember stuff from a decade ago more than you can remember last year yes i mean like conceivably possibly sixth because was she bafta nominated i don't think she was but the movie was in several places i remember Um, it came on very strong as the season went on like it really felt like it was peaking at the right time that movie right. and uh, The White Tiger both felt like they were peaking at that same right time. Well, we'll Honestly. have to get into that year soon, yeah. because once we pass this year's Oscar ceremony, we have to do a 2020 movie. He also directed uh, a really kind of interesting action epic that I definitely saw in the theater, mostly because um, I was obviously so into Channing Tatum and still am. Um, but this, he directed a movie called the Eagle where Channing Tatum plays a Roman centurion who, uh, has to find a, a, an eagle like a standard uh in the shape of an eagle to bring back home because it was belonged to his father or something whatever roman action epic where it's uh it's him and then jamie bell as his as they say in the movie as his slave and so i there was like obviously a lot of like jokes being made about you know uh channing tatum uh, having jamie bell as his slave and so anyway um Definitely saw it in the theater. Definitely remember at the time being like, that's a movie. That is definitely a movie. (laughs) And, but yeah, um, did not make very much money, uh, I feel like. Anyway, at least for its genre, it did not make a whole lot of money. So 
What is he doing next, I wonder? If he's got anything on the horizon. Hold on. He did do the Whitney Houston documentary that came out a few years ago that... Right. Not got him in some hot water, but got pushback from the family for some of those interviews. Well, the family is still very, very dedicated to not preserving talking about yeah. her as a queer person. And well, and not openly talking about some of the abuse she went through and other family members have said that they went through. There's a um, lot that, that yeah, that there there's a whole lot of stuff and like at the time I felt that and we have a Whitney Houston biopic coming this year starring Naomi Aki who I love, but I just wish that people would let Whitney rest in peace. I very much agree with you there. I very much agree with you. I it's it starts to feel like you're picking at the bones of a corpse, like not to be indelicate with a metaphor, but of someone um, who is treated very poorly and yeah. Yeah. Leave her alone. Yes. Just let her be. Yes. I agree. Um all right. What else do we want to talk about with regard to state of play? Is it worth I talking mean, about Mirren at all in this? We haven't really had really. a whole lot it's of occasion to because, talk about Helen Mirren. We've only I mean, ever Helen done Mirren one other Helen Mirren movie. Just does so many movies. I mean, like, this was filmed in four days, and, like, that's, you know, a trivia tidbit. <laughs> like, as if that's any different for what it feels like a lot of the roles that she does. She shows up and, like, gets her with or and credit yeah. in a lot of movies, and that's what it is. Have we done any other mirrors besides Woman in Gold? No. Wow. That was our first. This is our second. I think it's because she's either in movies that are just not on... Well, though that's not really true. She's got there's definitely movies she's made that we could end up doing. I we definitely have to do The Good Liar. I've said that f- several times. Um <laughs> I think that's a perfect this had Oscar Buzz movie. Um but she's just she finds success with Oscar a lot of times and even stuff when she misses like The Woman in Gold or Trumbo or Hitchcock, those things still get a nomination. Well, not Woman in Gold, but Hitchcock and, and Trumbo did. So right. uh, I think a good one, uh, whenever we eventually do it to talk about Helen Mirren, because she is batshit in this movie, along with everything else, is collateral beauty. Well, yes. We keep talking about what ex- how exactly we want to deploy collateral beauty on this podcast, because that's that's a big saving gun. it. It's a it we're at the point where it's like, okay, we gotta save some big ones for stuff, but it's that thing where you ever like go grocery shopping and you get like one thing and you're really excited about like, oh, this will be like my best dinner of the week. And what, you yes. know what I mean? It's like a pork loin or something like that. And you're just like, well, I can't have it on just Monday. This is just a stupid Monday. You know what I mean? Where it's like all of a sudden 630 and I haven't really started doing anything. And then Tuesday and it's like, ah, I didn't think to defrost it. All right. And then it's like, you know, and it's it's by the time the sudden you reach the end of the week and it's just like, well, now I got this freezer burned pork loin and the, you know, whatever. And it's just like the moment has passed and all of a sudden you've, you know, you've wasted the good pork loin. This is how I feel like with collateral beauty is we're holding on to it and we don't quite know what for yet. And right. We want to make sure that it's right and it's that's the right moment, but uh, we'll we'll figure it out. We'll do we'll do right by it. Helen Mirren. What else? What else? Helen Mirren, man. This movie got a nomination 
from the Alliance of Women Film Journalists for Actress Defying Age and Ageism for Robin Wright. Tied up that feels with like a the backhand. private lives of Pippa Lee. That feels like a little bit like a backhand. I don't know. Not to slight the yeah, alliance. Yeah, like it's a little bit like journalist. you are still hot. And it's like, okay. It feels a little condescending. It feels a little, you know, I don't know. Sexy at any age. Well, Meryl like, wins this year. So like you it it feels like less it's um It's complicated. Oh, also the third movie Robin Wright was uh tied up for in this category, besides Private Lives of Pippa Lee, and this is a Christmas Carol. All right, this is where the your Zemeckis. argument falls apart. This is where your argument falls <laughs> apart, Alliance of Women Film Journalists. <laughs> like what are we doing? Sexy at any age, and it's just like mocap Robin Wright in a Christmas Carol. Like, what the fuck? What's going on? <laughs> Jesus. Um, the other nominees are Sophia Loren in Nine. Sure. Michelle Pfeiffer in something called Personal Effects. Oh, I remember that title, but never saw that movie. But yes, Meryl wins for Julie and Julia. It's complicated and fantastic, Mr. Fox. That's, I feel like this is the ideal where it doesn't feel like a backhand because like this was around the time where people finally realized, oh yeah, Meryl Streep movies make a fuck ton of money. And like, yes, true. Yes. It feels like there's a whole lot of like people trying to reassert that the rule is that only men can make money in movies. And, but like the other ones, it feels like, Oh, you're still hot? Like, what are you trying to say with these nominations? I don't know. But uh, right. we we support any um, positive nominations for Robin Wright. She's yeah. great. I should also say in terms of uh, nominations that this movie got, Kevin McDonald was nominated at the London Film Critics Circle Awards for British Director of the Year for this. He was nominated alongside, well, the winner was Andrea Arnold for Fish Tank, which that's rad. That's super rad. Um, iconic uh, Michael Fassbender ass crack cinema is uh, is <laughs> fish tank. Um, Sam Taylor Johnson for Nowhere Boy, which get your life, girl. As far as I'm concerned, like get okay, your if you're saying we should retire, movie doesn't exist because Nowhere Boy is a movie that definitely doesn't exist. We should just start calling those movie Nowhere Boys. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, Armando Iannucci for In the Loop, which I was and am in love with. Uh, absolutely adore that that movie got a screenplay nomination from the Oscars. Highly deserved. Saw that movie uh, in theaters and then have watched it at least once a year since then. Uh, so, so good. And then uh, Duncan Jones, uh, son of David Bowie uh, for Moon. Duncan Jones, who yelled at me on Twitter one time because I uh, 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 what made was fun of J- Warcraft. No. Well, in the guise of Warcraft, what was the Jake Gyllenhaal movie uh, that he made? Source Code. Source Code. I said Source Code wasn't a successful movie. And he yelled at me on Twitter because uh, I was apparently wrong. <laughs> Um, sorry. Is he just searching source code? Where does he... This is one of those things where it's like some of these people who are yelling at... Some of these filmmakers who are yelling at things, it's like, you're just searching for your name and the name of people. Well, it was was from an article that I had written. So, uh, I at least will give, you know, don't, again, don't seek out your own press if you're a 
filmmaker, but also like at least he wasn't like just searching tweets. Uh, that at least right. was at least an article that I had written. Um, but uh, unlike yeah. uh, no, I won't say it. He said I was an idiot, but anyway. Um, best of luck to Duncan Jones. You no, were right. Movie. You were right. It was not a successful. It's not a successful movie. movie. I didn't hate Source Code. It's not a bad movie, but I just it didn't light the world on fire. I'm not wrong about saying that. Anyway. Um, anyway, Moon's a good. Should we move on to the IMDb game? Yes, let's. All right, tell us what uh, the IMDb game is. Oh, will I ever? Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles' release years as a clue, and if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. That is the IMDb game. Spectacular. Would you like to give her guess first? Well, why don't I give first? All right. Whom's do you have for me? So I mentioned that the uh, miniseries State of Play was written by Paul Abbott, but it was directed by David Yates, who eventually just sort of gave himself over body and soul to uh, the Harry Potter franchise and all of its permutations. <laughs> he is... Uh, Coming out next with uh, Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore, which we get it, you know, haha, Secrets of Dumbledore. He's a big old Nelly Queen. Um, where he's taking over the role of Grindelwald from uh, disgraced Johnny Depp. So, uh, Mads Mikkelsen is, uh, is taking over uh, uh, the role of Grindelwald from uh, the disgraced Johnny Depp, I should say, and that's who I would like you to guess for your IMDb game is the great Mads Mikkelsen. Okay. Uh, how much TV is on there? One. Hannibal. Yes. Great. Uh, Hannibal, what a cool show. Oh, Missed I show. fucking loved Hannibal. Like, absolutely grossest shit I actually I've ever like seen I feel like it's going to be pretty influential because like we talked about on our Sundance episode the movie Fresh which like oh yeah without spoiling too much of that movie I feel like there are stretches of it that it is like very liberally stealing from Hannibal the TV I show. sometimes imagine that NBC at the time just put those episodes on the air without ever watching them because it is shocking to me that on network that television... That it was a primetime television show. Primetime <laughs> network television where somebody is uh, murdered in a way where, like, they are made into a cello where they're, like, tendons and bones and whatnot are played like a cello. It's just... There I mean, was a some person of it who, is like, mostly suggestive. Some but... of it. But, some of it is, but then there's some shit that's like, oh my god. <laughs> there was one person on that show who was, like, cut up into sections and then, like, displayed on, like, slides that would be, like, a 3D puzzle kind of a way. There was also somebody who was cut out of the belly of a horse. There was a lot going on in Hannibal. Right. And it was all super fucking gross and totally awesome. And I loved that show. God, I loved that show. All right. So you got okay, Hannibal, Matt right? Mickelson, back to his yeah. known for. Um, another Three round. Films. Definitely another round. Another round, which he should have gotten an Oscar nomination for. 1,000% should have. A bummer um, that it didn't happen. 
that it didn't come close to happening was that's the annoying part that he never seemed to be in the conversation, which was dumb. I mean, <laughs> that Oscar year, like me saying, give it another month. And like, that's like, absolutely not. But like, give it another month and he could have had a Best Actor nomination. He was back. Sure. If the Oscar campaign right? had gone into July, then yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, another movie that got like, critical buzz for and he won can the hunt is definitely in there yes that's the one i thought was going to trip you up interesting uh okay so i have a hard time believing that there is a because he's done enough like studio movies that uh or like movies in america that i have a hard time believing that it's another non-English language movie. So I'm going to guess um, Casino Royale. It's utterly dumb that it's not Casino Royale. But it's mm. not. It's so it's so weird to me. He That's does the movie that like to Daniel Craig. made him a thing in the United States. Interesting. No, it's not. Okay. Um Okay, so what other franchises has he been in? Unless... He is in Rogue One. Is it Rogue One? It's not Rogue One. So Mm. that's two strikes. Uh, So your missing year is 2016. Okay, I don't think that's going to help me. Um, Which was the same year as Rogue One, as it happens. Was Hannibal still on the air? I don't think so. I think it ended in 2015. Huh. Okay, is it the Rihanna bitch better have my money video? <laughs> <laughs> I love his quote for that. He's like, I was in this video. Bitch better have my money. I guess I'm the bitch. <laughs> what a wonderful man. Um, 2016. Yeah. Okay. I'll say you are on the right track with uh, Rogue One. Okay. You. What does that mean? Your impulse to go down that road was correct. The Star Wars road? No, not that specific. But the franchise road? Yes. So he's in another franchise movie from 2016. This is a movie you've definitely... I, I would bet money you've never seen it, and you probably then don't know that he's in it, even though he is... Oh, is it a Fast and the Furious movie? No. Because I've never seen any of those, and I have zero plan to. Um, He's the main antagonist in this movie. I mentioned it in this podcast. Mm, What franchises did we talk about? Not with Russell Crowe. Ben Aff... It's not the Batman versus Superman, is it? Nope. Is he the bad guy in Doctor Strange? He's the bad guy in Doctor Strange. Yes, he is. I have seen that movie, and I remember zero from that movie. I watched that movie the day after Trump was elected president. I was Uh, walking home from work. That's probably why I don't remember anything from that movie. I was walking home from work, and I'm like, I need a distraction like nobody's business. And I walked, and I bought a ticket to Doctor Strange, and I sat down, and I could not... My 
I could not surrender myself to that movie. I was so annoyed by it. I was like, what the fuck is going on in this thing? I was also exhausted because I was up late uh, the night before. And so I like couldn't keep my eyes open. And I just, I owe that movie for as much as, you know, I do, I'm such a Marvel person that like, I should go back and, and watch that one again. Um, because I was just not in the right headspace for it, but like, right. Oh man. Uh, I did see this one because this is before I was like, I'm not watching these Marvel movies anymore. Uh, Our great schism, Chris, you and me. Our great schism that happened with Black Widow. I will. I'm just. I'm. I'm, You know, it's a good movie. To watch one of them. You know, it's a good movie. Is Black Widow. All right, give me not a good movie. Good movie. Terrible movie. Great movie. Not a great movie. Good movie. Very good movie. Uh, Okay, so uh, we talked about Ben Affleck as an actor-director, but we also talked about one of State of, Play- State of Play's main influences, and that's All the President's Men. Ooh. How can I l- close this circle in any other way but to give you Robert Redford? Robert Redford. We talked about him before. Um, are they One of his credits is just a director. Just a director. Credit. That was what I was going to ask. Okay. Well, for as much as Quiz Show is the more recent one, and I love it, I'm going to guess it's Ordinary People. That is a correct guess. It is Ordinary People. All right. So, iconic Redford shit. Um, not going to guess all is lost. Did I tell you? Uh, I found, I sent that to you, right? The clip? Of the the talkback. The Is All Lost? Where I found the Is All Lost clip. I sent that to you and Katie, right? I don't think so. Oh, I did. I'll find it again. I definitely did. Um anyway, it was amazing. It was as amazing as I remember it. It was I it's my recall of it was perfect. Alright, anyway. Um The Sting. No. Damn it. Butch Cassidy the Sting, and the which I didn't even realize. I think I knew this. I just like it's one of those. His things only that, acting nomination. His only acting nomination. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, the fact that it was his only acting nomination and it won Best Picture is what made me think it would be on there. Um, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Correct. Okay, so that's two out of four, with one wrong guess for the Sting. It, Did we talk when I watched the Sting? No. When, I didn't like it. The only I've it. never seen the movie of it. My little sister was in uh, her drama club in high school. They did the play of the Sting. Ah, well, that is cool. Yeah, um, it was fun. Yeah, it's just not for me. Her character. I get that people love. She it. was a small. She was a, a side character, and her character description in uh, the notes was a beefy man, and so uh, that was fun. That was fun for. Oh, everybody. great. Um. I'm, it's not going to be, unfortunately, my beloved Sneakers, even though that is a perfect movie, perfect 90s artifact, impeccably cast, uh, Sidney Poitier, rest in peace. Um, River Phoenix, also rest in peace. All right. Redford, Redford, Redford. I feel like there's going to be so- one thing sort of more recent and then one old thing. Can't um, give you any hints yet. No, don't. I'm just going to, I'm going to guess the way we were and then get the years. 
incorrect, not the way we were. Your years are 1984 and 1976. Okay, so 84 is the most recent. 84 has got to be the natural. It is the natural. The natural is first on his known for. Natural's really well beloved. Natural also uh, filmed in Buffalo, New York, I should say. Oh. Um, and like recognizably so. You can see a lot of uh, a lot of local landmarks there. Um, the only thing I remember about The Natural is I fell asleep watching it as a child. So <laughs> it's probably not for me. Uh, I will say for a movie that's very baseball-y, it is actressy as you please. Like the the particularly Barbara Hershey and Kim Basinger's performances are like there's some there's some deliciousness happening there. And then Glenn Close got nominated for um standing up in a pretty dress for that movie. Um, <laughs> uh okay. So what was the other year? 70 76. All the presidents men. All the presidents. There we go. You dastardly <laughs> dastardly jerk. All right. There we go. Well, at least well I done. at least I that's a that's I like we should do more uh uh uh, actors with older filmographies because i think i like the challenge of that yeah let's do it All let's right. commit to that let's let's do that as a late new challenge. year's resolution <laughs> yeah exactly um all right so guys that's our episode if you want more this head oscar buzz you can check out the tumblr at this head oscar you should also follow our twitter account at had underscore oscar underscore buzz joe where can the listeners find more of you sure uh twitter and letterboxd uh both as joe reed reed spelled r-e-i-d I am also on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mebius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get those podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So don't be a casual Russell Crowe moviegoer. Be an active This Had Oscar Buzz reviewer. Something like that. We're <laughs> We're getting uh, semi-close to a thousand Apple Podcast reviews, guys. Ooh. So, listeners, young, old, new, uh, from the very beginning, uh, head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review and get us past a thousand reviews. Why not? That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz. Bye.